As I look back at some of my calendars for the past decade or so, yes, they go back to 1972 when I realized I was falling in love with this girl named Marty, and I thought, this is historic. I'm going to keep a record. And as I look back at those every once in a while, I realize that many of our summers here were blessed by time in several Old Testament books. So for the last eight weeks, Blake has taken us through the very profitable book of Ruth in the Old Testament and through some baptismal waters, which was quite an occasion. So I want to say thank you, Blake, even though he's out of town. He'll hear it, I hope. Today we're jumping back into 2 Corinthians starting in chapter 3, and we'll be covering verses 1 through 6 today. The first two chapters of 2 Corinthians seem to provide surprises in almost every paragraph as the Apostle Paul weaved teaching and doctrine in and out of his very personal explanations defending his ministry. What changes today as we begin chapter 3 is that Paul uses God's transforming work in the lives of the Corinthians themselves as his strongest defense of his calling from God to those in the church who were his greatest critics and so very divisive. Now, if it seems contradictory to point out God's redeeming and transforming work in these people when we already know many of their visible and very public problems and behaviors, which Paul has already tried to address, then if that's you, you're actually ready to tackle what's coming next in this chapter, in this text. What do I mean? Simply that that question is at the heart of getting the big picture of what God is in the process of doing in us as individuals and as church. In other words, Paul shines the light of the gospel's work into the reality of our mess. We will gain some incredible insights into the transforming work and power of the gospel as we go ahead here. Things we already know are true about what God has done and is doing in us should become clearer and clearer as Paul applies these truths to himself and the people who will read this letter. In other words, because their situation is so personal to Paul, we're drawn into the mess with him as he deals with it, which means that we'll suddenly realize even more that we too are also messes who have been redeemed and are in the process of being transformed into the image of Christ. So let's get oriented by hearing, again, the last paragraph of chapter 2 
and then our text today in chapter 3. So if you are able, would you please stand as I read 2 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 2, verse 14. And then I'll go through chapter 3, verse 6. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, Paul's question to the Corinthians here in the first verse of chapter 3 about whether he should commend himself again to them, that flows out of the verse right before that in chapter 2, verse 17. His critics must be revealed for what they are and how they operate, and that's part of what he's doing. So after Paul emphasized that anyone's sufficiency for Christian ministry is one of total inability to serve in their own strength, which he said in verse 16 of chapter 2, he then draws their attention to the first part, in, in the first part of verse 17, to what flows out of men's hearts when their motives and only resources come from their own desires and devices, in other words, themselves. Look what he says. For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. And this is a picture of someone trying to use God's word to draw attention to themselves and profit from it. 
Then he distinguishes himself and his helpers from those kind of frauds by saying in the next part of verse 17 of chapter 2, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And what's he getting at by saying that? Simply that no one is sufficient or competent to be a minister of the new covenant in Christ unless their sufficiency is from God. And this is very, very strong in the text. In other words, all servants of Christ are totally unable in and of themselves because their total ability or sufficiency must come in and from Christ. We need to let that sink in. It's something we probably know in our heads, but when we start living it out ourselves, we get in the way way too often. So does Paul actually say that, or did I just kind of sum it up the wrong way? Does he actually put it like that? Well, yes, he does. We just read it in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 3. Look how strong this is. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So what we see from our last time in 2 Corinthians, especially there in verse 16 of chapter 2, when we put that together with what we just read in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, what we see there is one of the most important truths to understand in actually applying Scripture to our lives and being transformed in the image of Christ. Some would say that this is the most important thing to understand if we want to apply truth to our lives. Total inability in ourselves and total ability in Christ. And that must be understood together. Paul has given each of these here in this text as easy to remember. Think of it as bookends. And the bookends are only six verses apart. Paul has given each of us these. And we'll get back to them later, but first we need to see what else is between these bookends. Again, do you see how Paul weaves teaching and doctrine in and out of his very personal explanations defending his ministry? He's doing a lot with a few words. The Corinthians are Christ's personal letter. That's what we see in verses 1 through 3 in chapter 3. Let me read that again, because this is hard to get around our minds if we're just thinking of the Corinthians as people with all these horrible issues that aren't really living for Christ at all. But look what he says. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you? 
You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. There are a lot of pictures in those words, are there not? They help us understand it. Now, with all the unscrupulous imposters circulating in societies then, as they also do now, letters of recommendation or letters of introduction were valuable service to various uh, institutions, including the first century church. See, the question was, how could you tell who a stranger really was? What would we do today? We'd go online, we'd enter the name or the, the name of the group, and we'd try to find out everything we could about them. And depending on what sources we were looking at in those searches, we would find out all sorts of interesting stuff. True? In the first century, how did people find out who a stranger really was that came in claiming to be something to a church? The false teacher variety of these strangers were especially dangerous to the New Testament church. See, the dilemma here is common really to us all. One commentator explains this way. We have a certain healthy fear of being imposed on by strangers who are in fact charlatans. And yet we do not want to turn an unwelcoming face to every new person that we meet. So we're trying to look for the middle ground there, the wise ground. So these letters of recommendation or introduction would help solve this problem. Now we don't know exactly what Paul's critics were saying in Corinth, but we get the flavor of it by looking at other New Testament letters, especially in Galatians chapter 1 and 2. There, there must have been some noise in the Corinthian church about Paul's arrival there with no backing from others. And that was interpreted by his critics as being self-condemning evidence. If they already knew something about this missionary named Paul, they may have also claimed that Paul was just a representative of the real apostles in Jerusalem, meaning that he had gone way beyond what he had been tasked to do in his teaching and authority. You, you feeling what's going on here? See, Paul didn't come in with a resume on special parchment that he'd divide up to whoever and say, this is who I am and where I was. Here's some stamps of approval. There was no such letter of recommendation that he brought. So Paul responds here by drawing a spiritual example from the idea of a letter of recommendation. And he says that he and his fellow workers don't need a literal letter. Because why? Because they have a spiritual one which is full of evidence of their authenticity as genuine messengers of Christ. Can you, can you just see the critics in this church, 
gathered and they read this letter and he's making this point because what's he saying? He's saying that you Corinthians are the evidence of God's work here and our authenticity. Look how your lives have changed. He turns it completely backwards on them. In other words, they did not come, Paul and his fellow workers, with human authorization. But with whose authorization? God's authorization. And the spiritual letter itself was the congregation of believers in the Corinthian church. This letter comes from Christ. Because apart from Christ and his gospel, this evidence would not exist at all. It'd be completely different. And it was penned or written by Paul and his fellow workers. The gospel preaching of this whole group was blessed by God in bringing many Corinthians to salvation in Christ. And remember what kind of city Corinthians, Corinth was. And the ink that was used so that the letter could be clearly read was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's work in these people was unmistakable. He imparted new life in Christ, and he was now sanctifying them more and more and making them more like Christ. So this spiritual letter was written on, he says, human hearts, not on tablets of stone? What is that referring to? This was not superficial change, but deep inner change that showed up and changed conduct and changed manner of living. At the end of verse 2, Paul says that this letter was also to be known and read by all. Implying what? That what God had done in their hearts would inevitably show up in their lives and conduct. So by saying tablets of stone versus tablets of human hearts, Paul is also alluding to the difference between the Old and New Covenants, which he'll say more about later in chapter 3. Now, something else important to notice is that when Paul writes about this spiritual letter, you notice that it is not plural. It is singular. And that would refer, if it was plural, to individual Christian believers. But here we see a singular letter. In other words, it was not simply the salvation of individuals that showed the authenticity of Paul and his helper's gospel-centered work, but it was the establishment of what? A gospel church, which meant there was now a godly society within an ungodly society which in Corinth would stick out clearly. Even though we know these people had issues, their lives were changed and they were being made more and more like Christ. 
The spiritual letter, then, the Corinthian church, helps us see how Christ's church authenticates the gospel better than anything else in any community because it demonstrates by its presence a loving, caring fellowship of God's people. And folks, listen to these words. This is what we are experiencing now and will be, which every community desperately needs. More so now than ever in the history of this country. No matter what comes against it, no matter what is said about it in evil terms, we have a chance to be authenticating the gospel by the way we have been changed by Christ. So this is very timely. It's always been timely down through history, but I think now especially so. Would you agree with that? We're wanting to know why God allows this and what's going on and where we're headed. This is the biggest part of the answer right here. He says in verse 3, notice, he's writing to a church, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on the tablets of human hearts. Each one of us is a part of the body of Christ, no matter where we work, where we play, where we go, what we say, where we shop, we are representatives of our king. And we represent this church because many times people will ask, not just, why are you so weird? Which they may think. They will ask, I saw y'all together. And, and obviously, you, you're different. And we, we will hear that a lot if we are. If we can see Christ living through us this way. So now as we look at verses 4 through 6, we see Christ's ministers and people literally being commanded. We operate to live by an utterly, by being utterly dependent upon our God. And I don't know whether you've thought about this. You should have after all these months. Has God gotten our attention yet? The things you used to depend on and not even think about, and therefore you don't know whether you're really trusting God with them or not. What about now? That has come into focus a whole lot more just because of what's been going on all around us that's, that's racking us with sorrow and some confusion. But is it helping us to be more dependent upon God? Answer that. If it's not, something's probably wrong. God in his grace is using this time to literally make us depend more on him. And if you don't respond to that 
as we're going to see in these verses, then you will be one unhappy person. There will be no joy. There will be no hope. You will not live the way that other people will be want, wanting to be around you. So we have an opportunity here and a privilege that we've never really had before. And you must look at it in this way. So we come here to this second bookend that explains how we are to live, especially in gospel ministry. And remember that first bookend, Paul says it by asking a question. He says, who is sufficient or competent for those things? And what's the answer supposed to be? Nobody. What is asked of us, how we are to live, how we are to minister, is completely beyond our own human capability. And some of us are becoming very frustrated at finding that out. So it is not only appropriate, but important to recognize and accept and confess our total inability to fulfill everything in the life we are called to in our own strength. That's called being honest. It's called believing what God says about our own strength and ability. Now, as counterintuitive as it sounds, the more that we desire to give our all to Christ and to serve him faithfully, the more that we'll find out we can't do that without also learning to depend upon the total ability of Christ to supply in himself everything we need to live and minister. Do you see how that goes together? An awareness of our total inability without a grasp of the great resources that we have in Christ will lead us only to despair and burnout. On the other hand, great confidence in God, which is balanced by a sense of our personal inadequacy, may well gradually lead to a warped self-confidence as we come to imagine that what God is doing is actually really our own doing. That's so easy to slip into that. So we need some examples. Are there any examples of the disciples having to learn this? There are many examples. But you know what one of the best one is? It's one of the best stories that all the kids probably already know and all of us should remember and look at. It. And that's in Luke 5, verses 1 through 11, when Jesus calls his fishermen disciples to himself. So I'm going to read Luke 5, 1 through 11. And then we're going to see how this applies. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Christ to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Simon Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land, 
And Jesus sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they'd done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. That's a lot of fish. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were the partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Jesus. What a story. And it's not about just catching fish, is it? So, do you think that later these fishermen remembered who they must depend on as they diligently served him, catching men? What do you think? That was a lesson they would never forget, but that doesn't mean they didn't have to remind themselves every once in a while. Do we? We have to remember who it is that we depend on. And we can. Another way to say and remember this vital truth Listen to the whole thing, please. Even though we are made competent, we are not made independent. Even though we are made competent, we are not made independent. We are made to be a part of each other. A nice Western way to say this is there is no Lone Ranger Christians. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. And then, of course, somebody says, well, everybody's got to have Tonto. Well, it's a little more than Tonto. We're talking about a group of believers, a local church. So every servant of Christ is, by definition, under authority in and as they serve, in and as we serve. We are under the authority of Christ. So we're not freelance workers. We're under the authority of Christ. Now, 
we have to make sure that we hear the tone and the context of Paul's words. And we need to make several more observations that should thrill our hearts with wonder as we consider our own life stories here. Because that's what you must do. That's what I must do. We must consider our own life stories in this context. First, in mentioning God's redeeming work being written on tablets of human hearts by the Holy Spirit, Paul is calling attention to Christians serving Christ in relation to the new covenant, which next week, that's almost what the whole passage is about, which is marked by, the new covenant is marked by a personal knowledge of God and forgiveness purchased by Christ, taking our sins upon himself and paying the just penalty of death for us. In other words, the letter of God's law cannot save us. But it does point us to the Savior that we have to have who has kept and fulfilled the law in our place. That's sort of an easy-to-remember summary of New Covenant. So instead of receiving the condemnation that we deserve from God by faith in Christ's person and work through the Holy Spirit's redeeming work, we've received what? New life in Christ. And look what our text says. The Spirit gives life, which means what? If you're having trouble remembering in these tough times, Take your pictures off your refrigerator door and put this list on it. Or, if you know somebody that just demonstrates each of these points, put their picture on it and put that beside it. Our new life in Christ, the Spirit gives life, which means what? Complete forgiveness. For our sin. It means the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It means you're not alone, no matter how alone you are. Union with and in Christ. It means a new identity in Christ. It means being made a part of the body of Christ and the certain hope that we have of life eternally with Christ. That, by the way, Frida is enjoying, and you can't even put that in words. Do we go to this list when we are despairing, when we look at the news, when we look at an upcoming election, when we look at our bank account, when we look at the list of 50 medicines we're on, when we look at, you just name it, we must go here. And that's how we depend on Christ. We have to as see as we read this, we must depend on him. 
He's the one who has done all this for us and will lead us forward. We must see and learn to depend on him out of a growing sense and understanding of what the one who created us has done for us that we could never do for ourselves. And there is never a point where you reach it and go, I know everything there is to know about what God has done for me. God in his grace keeps revealing more and more of himself the more you live, the older you get. If we are not grateful for his work of redeeming us, if we're not grateful, then we have to question whether we really even know him. Knowing him means that we really belong to him and are grateful for his mercy and grace to us so much that we will gladly serve him however he desires. Knowing that he's good and faithful. In other words, depending on Christ is literally a life-saving privilege. So we have to work individually, but together, to run to him together, to trust him together. If you're tired of praying about this on your own, come Wednesday night and pray with other believers here. And come to pray, not just sit and listen. Come to pray. Let's do it together. That's what will help encourage us. You ever been in a prayer situation where the last person that you expect will pray, prays? What does that do to your heart? Another way to say it is that, what does it do to your heart if one of your kids prays something that's just so honest and so real that it, you can't even say anything after it? That's what we need to do together. It's not the words you use. It's not the vocabulary that you have. It's just coming before God and crying out to him together. The second thing we need to observe here is that Paul always has to deal with the influence of the first century Pharisees, which tended to harden the Mosaic law into a system of self-salvation. You know, we do this, that, that means we're saved. I'm, I'm working my way there. Now, we've got to think about this in order to understand it. Even though there weren't as many Jews in the Roman cosmopolitan city of Corinth, it seems that this following the rules will save you mentality is hardwired into each of us anyway. We finally do something good and we're faithful. We're so proud of it, we let everybody know. And then we try to keep count. And then that doesn't work. So you start erasing. I blew it, blew it, blew it, blew it. And pretty much you look, and even though you did this, you blew it, blew it a whole lot more. If that's the way you live all the time, that is sad. Nobody can save themselves by following any set of rules, which is why Paul points out that God's law functions to make that clear. It condemns so that we know that we need a Savior. 
That's what the law does. And then when you come to know him and you're grateful for what he's done, then you serve him gladly. You obey him gladly. And every parent in here knows the difference in your kids. You see it often. When they do something and they did it because they want to serve you? How different is that than when they do something just because you finally made them? Now, you still might need to make them, but isn't it wonderful if they finally go, whoa. The Ten Commandments show us how we're to relate to our Creator and one another. That's why they're so powerful. And thirdly, the context here of what is written on tablets of stone versus tablets of the human heart emphasizes what we already know is true, the uniqueness of the gospel of Christ. So Paul's contextual picture has everything to do with someone trying to achieve salvation under the old covenant law, which is what the Pharisees were teaching, versus receiving salvation as a gift under the new covenant. That's the context. And by the way, just I'm going to emphasize this a lot next week, but do you realize that everywhere the Jews had settled in the Mediterranean area, they were all over the place already because of the Roman Empire and because of what was going on in Israel. Everywhere they settled, there was a synagogue. And you know who was teaching in that synagogue? Usually a Pharisee. So they were getting the law up to here. And they were finding out that that didn't save them. And that's why the gospel message took off in so many places. Because... Gentiles had the same issue. Whatever religion they were in that didn't have the God as the God, there was always some list. There was always some new way to live. There was always certain things that were you, you had to do. And that's the way it still is, as weird as some of those lists are these days. We've already emphasized Nobody will be grateful for something they think they earned by their own means. And we're seeing that played out on TV and news programs and podcasts so much right now. So much it's nauseating. And it should bother you. Nobody will be grateful for something they think they earned by their own means. And if we're not grateful for God's plan of redeeming us, we will never see the need to be dependent upon Christ. We will never want to be dependent upon Christ. And we will never know and appreciate the mercy, the grace, love, and faithfulness of the Lord. And you will be wondering, what is this all about? Why doesn't it work? Why can't I change? And all of that is answered 
by the gospel. You know what? God loves to show his mercy. So let's ask God for his mercy for us, for our community, for our country. Because mercy means that God shows us something that we don't deserve. And our country doesn't deserve much of that at all right now. Let's pray. Oh God, we are thrilled by this message of Paul and this letter to these people that we were probably looking down on. Their church is not that great. They've got so many issues. We're enjoying periods of, of grace and harmony in ours, et cetera, et cetera. And yet we see that we're all redeemed sinners. You have much work to do in each of us. And our question is, can we operate knowing that we fail so often, but knowing that we're forgiven so much, that your spirit indwells us, that the desire to serve and love you has grown so much that we're seeing growth in our hearts from within. Lord, we pray for your mercy on us, our church, the decisions that we're making, on our community, on the leaders everywhere. We pray for mercy in areas that where people are literally tearing up their own communities because of some ideology that's really off the wall. Lord, we pray for mercy because we know we don't deserve it. Only Christ can change hearts, and we pray that we would be instruments of your grace in him by the way that we deal with and speak to and live our own lives here and the way that we live as a group of people who are part of you in unity with you, unified in you. And we know that that's possible by your spirit working in ways that we don't even expect. So help us grow that way. Help us see beyond the immediate to what's really true behind all things, that you are on your throne, that you have sent your son to do what we could not do for ourselves, and that is the greatest demonstration of your love that the world will ever see. Lord, we pray that you'd act powerfully, empower us, to be able to stand where we need to, to be able to see what we need to see, to be able to lead where we need to lead, to be able to love our families the way we need to love and lead them and serve one another. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.